1: I also work with gender questioning teenagers and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture.
1: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens.
0: Hi Stella, how's it going today? I'm well.
1: How are you? Doing well. Um, today we've got a very tricky subject, you know, it's going to be an episode devoted to suicide, suicidality, attempted suicide. And I know some people might want to immediately turn off. I think it's really important that we we look at it, we look at the psychology of it, we give it a good in-depth kind of analysis so that people who uh, do listen to it understand the many, many, many facets and layers that underlie it. Because I think people close down the conversation about suicide and the kind of suicide is bad. Here's the links to the uh, the mental health services. Quick, 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 close it down, move it on. And I don't think that's fair and I don't think that's appropriate. And I think it's very important that we give this subject touchy and awful and frightening as it is. It's so common in some groups that we need to kind of say, well, let's have a look at it. What's going on? And also it's so misrepresented in so many ways. I know in my own book, Fragile, I talked a lot about the mental health industry and how it has lost its way in many ways. And the way we report about mental health issues is anxiety being a big one is feeding anxiety. It's creating more problems than it's solving I think even though there's great media guidelines around suicidality, I think we've lost our way in a very big way. It was interesting. I remember I, I studied this quite a bit. And when the media guidelines came in was around about 1989, around how to report on suicide. And not long after, I think it was three years later, uh, Kirk Cobain died by suicide. And the media were impeccable, they were brilliant, they were told what to do, they were told to keep themselves together, not to glamorise it, not to subscribe kind of different motivations not to talk about the method and the media did very very well and it's considered mm. a really mm-hmm. good success how they described Kirk Cobain's terrible mm. tragic death and they, they held it together because you know the media guidelines were fresh at that point many yeah. years later Robin, Robin Williams died by suicide, and this was maybe, when was that, 2014, 2015? Mm. And they were awful. They they had lost all track of the media guidelines. They had fallen into a kind of a soundbite culture, and there was an extraordinary number of copycat deaths as a result. You're not actually even meant to use the word copycat deaths. You're meant to use some other word. But the point is that there was a no a, a huge impact, a very negative impact in the way that Robin Williams' uh, death was um, reported on impacted many many people in a tragic way and so we can do it right and we can do it wrong is my thesis mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so it's mm-hmm. very important that we do it right today and that we provide any information um, in in our links and we will do about anybody who's feeling any sort of suicidal ideation or suicidality but also that we're not afraid of it and that we discuss mm-hmm. it because I think it's so important
0: yeah I mean uh it's it's a terrifying prospect because when a suicide happens a completed suicide, it is everybody's worst nightmare. And the very natural place for the bereaved surviving loved ones to go is what could I have done? Were there warning signs? Had I done this? Could we have prevented this awful death? And understandably, I think when a young person is expressing a variety of things, whether it be deep depression or actual suicidal ideation or a really concrete suicide plan, for example. I mean, there's a broad range of things that can send loved ones and even mental health professionals into a bit of a panicked state. And, you know, hindsight is always such a torturous thing because we think... Next time, next time a child reaches out, next time a child says anything at all, we're going to make sure that we help this young person. And that has a really positive impulse behind it. And sometimes we misread situations and the way we respond to a young person's distress can also be disproportionate because we're trying with the tools we have to make sure we help anybody who might be at risk. So it's, a, it's just a very complicated subject and certainly it needs to be taken seriously. And as clinicians, you know, I I know I can speak for myself. I've worked with many young people who are seriously thinking about suicide. And thank goodness there are strategies that we can employ to try and support those young people. Um, And unfortunately, I've also worked with young people who have completed their suicides. And it's absolutely tragic and torturous and really wrecks everybody who loved that person.
1: Yeah, I think the people left behind are devastated because it's not only the tragedy and the tragedy is massive. It's not only the loneliness of the act that their loved one was, you know, so lonely. But also the questions, the questions that are left behind forever. I remember I had a client and his his son had died by suicide. I changed the name, but I, I swear so much of the sessions from then, you know, I met him after it had happened. And so much of the sessions when I met this client, like he was the father of the child who died by suicide. He used to just say, yeah, but, you know, what's the point? John's gone. And then he'd say something oh. else. And he'd say, yeah, but sure, why are we talking about this? John's gone. Mm. And every single time it was John's gone. It was John. Was It was a different name. But mm, the point mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. nothing, nothing was there anymore. Sure. He was gone. He was gone. And it was the saddest, 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 saddest. And it's such a, such a really, really very difficult burden on parents, on loved ones, on family who are left with what's the point. An awful lot of uh, people turned to real despair afterwards. But, you know, I've worked with many parents who have had people died. And, you know, I only met one the other day and the sun was shining. and She was having an ice cream. It was many years ago that her daughter died. Mm. And, you know, she she found, you can find some beauty in the world afterwards. It's a different type of beauty and it's a different type of texture. But you can, you can, yeah, you really yeah. can, you
0: know. Um, And, you know, of course, the the suicide issue comes up a lot in regards to the discussion around transgender children or gender dysphoric children or, uh, you know, children who are questioning their identity. And, you know, I I just want to make sure to clarify since listeners may not, you know, of course, wouldn't know. The young person that I knew who died by suicide was a client that I knew many years back before I started working with gender. Um, So that suicide was unrelated. Um, But when it comes to gender dysphoria and suicide, you know, we've heard from countless parents that are told, you know, if you don't support your child's transition, they will be at a high risk of suicide. So I thought that might be a, a good place for us to explore a little bit together, because this is both a terrifying prospect and Really, um, a misuse and a misreading of the very little information we even have on this topic.
1: Mm. Yeah, as usual, when it's to do with all things to do with gender, there is no research. The research is scrappy; it's self-reported, it's online surveys. It's there's very little peer-reviewed, reliable studies. An awful lot of jumping to conclusions. And you know these online surveys and stuff—they're—they're really—they're worse than useless because they misdirect people and they misrepresent situations. So you—you you can't go near them because it's too important. It's too important a subject that you can't just mess around with with online surveys that will misrepresent a situation. I—I—I I, I know that the official line with gender issues is we don't know. You know, we don't know. There isn't. Any sort of reliable studies that we can point to and say this is the issue. The terrible line that so many parents have rushed to medicalize their children because of the line, which is often given, and it's a dreadful line along the lines of, "Well, you'll you'll either have a trans son or a dead son." And it's phrases like that that are sometimes or a dead daughter, yeah, Yeah, trans son
0: or a dead daughter, trans son Mm -hmm. or dead daughter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see
1: what you mean. Yeah, Mm yeah. It's tragic and it's sad and it's awful and it's frightening. And I'm sure it's from a well-meaning place where people feel, because I've heard people think, and like their child might be five and gender dysphoric, and they think, oh, if I don't transition them, they're at risk of suicide. And it's like, no, they're not. They're five. They're they're Mm -hmm. not. The the, Mm -hmm. the cohort, it's just so unlikely. It's just not a reasonable point. Mm -hmm. And yet... It has gone, it's like the phrase born in the wrong body, it's just got into people's head that they think this is an extraordinarily high risk. When you look at it, there are different kind of there are different conditions that do have high risk. Psychosis is very high risk, schizophrenia, bipolar, they're very high risk for for, for suicide. Mm-hmm. So has interestingly body dysmorphia and so has anorexia and borderline personality disorder. There are certain conditions that do carry a higher mortality around suicide than others gender dysphoria as of yet isn't one of them insofar as we don't have the studies that back it up we do know that the stud that um if you transition the only long-term study of people who have transitioned that's i don't never know how to say the word dejna i think is how you say it she's from sweden d-h-e-j-n-e and we'll put up the link it's 2011 study from sweden a 40-year um following of people who transitioned who medically transitioned because it's 40 years it gave a huge amount of information of life after uh transition and because it was sweden you had a good chance of a fairly open progressive population they weren't suffering transphobia they weren't living in a very regressive country they were living in probably the most open and progressive country at the time and yet 19 times more likely to suicide than, an or- than let's say, people from the general population. So post-transition, you are 19 times more likely to die by suicide. Hence, an awful lot of people say, this is a, a vulnerable cohort. And whether it's pre-transition or it's post-transition, you can't say that transitioning solves the... Solve mm-hmm. resolves the suicidality of the cohort. It doesn't seem to. It's like they're mm-hmm. vulnerable when you've got a mental health condition, and so whether you transition or not, you're still vulnerable, and mm-hmm. they need help after transition, just as they do pre. But it's no reason to transition. It that mm. there's no no data backs that up,
0: right? And and in that study, there's no control. So what that means is they didn't have. Uh, Two dysphoric groups of people, one transitioned, one did not, to compare them to, all we have is that one cohort of individuals who did transition. And And then they compared it with the general population. With the typical population.
1: population. 19.6 times more likely than the general population who didn't have gender dysphoria. So
0: So we don't really know. I mean, we don't know if those people, had they not transitioned, would they have only a, you know, 10 times the general population risk of suicide or would they be, I mean, we have no idea, but it certainly doesn't seem like a a fail proof guarantee to make a person's overall suicidal risk lower. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they still had a very, very high risk. There's nothing, there's no data
1: to suggest to us, no reliable peer reviewed data to suggest to us that transitioning is a good idea to reduce suicidality there is no data and yet sadly it's been very misreported of all the major kind of myths that have gone out about gender and there are many this has to be in the top three or top one or two it's really really a badly badly misconstrued mm-hmm. um, fact that is not a fact it's a mm-hmm. it's a fiction.
0: And I think, you know, the general population, because like you mentioned earlier, Stella, is really nervous to think about suicide or talk about suicide, it's very easy to to be misinformed about it. And it's very easy for it to be an emotion based kind of call to action, like we have to do something. But it's valuable to think about what experts have to say. So one thing we'll include in the show notes is a really excellent documentary called The Trans Train. This is a Swedish documentary. There's three parts to it, I believe. And in the second Trans Train documentary, they're talking about this kind of commonly cited number that 40% of transgender teens self-report that they've attempted suicide. Now, 40% is an astronomically high number. And they interviewed somebody named Danuta Wasserman. She's a professor of psychiatry and uh, suicidology. And she's a renowned suicide expert. And they asked her, What do you think of this number? And she, like, you know, talked a little bit about the, the fact that it's self report. And she said, You know, in the scientific world, we say that if you get surprising results, the first thing you have to do is verify if they're really correct. She said there are so many pitfalls to these types of self-report surveys, and she said I actually don't believe that 40% of trans-identified teens have attempted to kill themselves. And you know, when when I heard her say that, it reminded me of my many years working with adolescents in kind of crisis situations, and how many times a young person, in a very earnest way, like they're not lying, they say, you know, I really thought about. I thought about killing myself. And you you know, when you explore what that means with a young person, very often, they're just saying, I just want to push the pause button. I just want to stop all this distress just for a moment. And then when you really look into it with them, usually young people will say, well, I wasn't actually planning to. I just want to make the pain stop, but I would never actually kill myself. And, you know, self-report from adolescents on an online survey with complete anonymity and kind of whatever type of hyperbole they want to interject, it's very, very hard to take that particular self-report as an accurate representation. And, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes if you talk with a young person who... Has reported that they've tried to to kill themselves, and you find out like, what do you mean by that? What happened? And it turns out they took like four aspirin or something along those lines. You realize, okay, you know, to them this was really it was a desperate um, behavior. They were obviously kind of self sabotaging behavior. But these sometimes these reports are not actual legitimate suicide attempts that would really threaten the young person's life. And I say this with like this the back of my mind, I I feel this extreme caution. I don't mean to dismiss that if a young person describes that they're really struggling and thinking of suicide, that you should not take it seriously. But what I am saying is that sometimes young people are just trying to express how much pain they're in with this really big Um, important and dramatic story and expression that doesn't necessarily correlate with them being at an actual risk of suicide.
1: Yeah, and that's really, really difficult to navigate. You know, I know when I was growing up, it was called a cri de coeur, which is a cry from the heart, and I thought it was a really respectful way of saying that that is what it what it is, if you follow me, that seems to have gone out of favor as a phrase, but I always liked it because it's like an instinctive shriek of pain, and it's like ah, uh, but you know is it intent to die not not necessarily, and that doesn't mean it's not serious, and that doesn't mean it shouldn't be taken massively serious because it should be, but it's it's not. The same, it's something different is going on. And so, because something different is going on, it needs to have its own name and its own respect and its own understanding. And um, that's where the language around suicide is so important. When people start inappropriately calling it failed suicide attempt or attempted suicide, things like that is probably not the right, well, it's definitely not the right way to describe it. And so we have to be very careful around our language, which is why rightfully so many people are very nervous around speaking about suicide at all, because they're afraid, because they know there's a lot of pitfalls. Yeah, there are a lot of pitfalls. And sadly, I, I think... We've we've lost our our our, you know. We used to have a taboo around suicide, which didn't work because that just put it under the ground and nobody spoke about it. But then we moved into talking about it, perhaps way too much. Certainly for younger people, moving into glamorizing it, moving into thirteen reasons why. Do you remember that program? But that was, to me, a stark glamorisation of, of suicide that was deeply inappropriate. And I've, I've worked with enough young people to know that they do, when they are thinking of suicide, they do glamorise it. They glamorise their funeral and they glamorise these people who are going to be talking about them and who are going to realise how hurt they were. And I might gently say, I, I don't think they might be talking about you. They, I, you know, I, I don't think they will, if you follow me. They're not necessarily going to be talking about you. Do you know what I mean? And they think, oh, but if I if I die by suicide, they will. And I'm like, I'm not sure they will. And that's where, for anybody, anybody who doesn't know, 13 Reasons Why was a film that came out maybe five years ago. I don't know how long ago it was. And it was huge at the time. It was a book first. I read the book. And it was directed at the teenage market. I think it was really inappropriate, personally. And it was about a kid who apparently died by suicide. And she had 13 reasons. And she sent a tape to all the kids They were the different reasons why and each one of them were going to feel bad in their own way and she was going to get back at them. And, you know, it was such a childlike version because honestly, humans were not like that. Some people just roll their eyes and move on and don't think about you again, even though they've really hurt you. So it's not necessarily life isn't so clean cut that people are going to be devastated after you die. And, you know, that the people who will be will be the people who loved you not the people necessarily who, who hated you so there's, or who disregarded you or mistreated you. So I think that uh, the, that was my very long segue into, I think, teenagers now. I think we've lost our way in talking about suicide. I think we've glamorised it. And I think that su- teenagers are really, really talking in very flippant terms around it. There's been a lot of suicide clusters where I live in Ireland and it's really contagious. You really have to be mm. very very careful around suicide and speaking about it because it is so contagious. And so that's a big issue too.
0: Mm-hmm. It it might be good to just kind of look at some of these reporting guidelines. I'm not sure if these are the same ones that apply to the Irish press or the UK press, but here in the universal. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here, you know, the CDC guidelines like one of them is not to present a simplistic explanation yeah. for the suicide. Could, right? I, could I jump in on that? Yeah.
1: The, the gender community have badly, badly broken that one because you're not meant to. And I know this. I've worked enough with suicide. I've had in my own dark experiences in my life that you're not meant to. And it's a, not an appropriate understanding to say there was one reason. There's pretty much never one reason. It's a, it's yes. a big existential concept. And I remember Andrew Solomon, the, the great writer, who I seem to mention on a lot of episodes. We must ask him, <laughs> hey, Andrew, come on on. I'm your number one <laughs> fan. But yeah, he said this amazing thing about suicide. He said, you know, suicide is the, it's the wish to kill. It's the wish to die. And it's the wish to be killed. Do you follow mm. me? There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on with the highly suicidal person. And to say it's just one reason is is diminishing the massiveness of this act. Mm -hmm. When it's not an impulsive childish act, and sometimes it's an impulsive childish act and we have to give some some space to that as well we've a lot to say in this actually
0: oh so much so much um you know dr michael bailey and ray blanchard wrote a little bit about this for the online blog fourth wave now it's a blog for parents who have dysphoric kids who are kind of doubting the affirmation narrative and one of the things they talk about is the leela alcorn case which was a young i think gender dysphoric male identified as a girl and um He died by suicide, and he was a very disturbed young person. He had a lot going on in his life, but one of the things that he had said apparently in some sort of a letter that he left was that his parents didn't affirm him or didn't support him, and actually they they apparently sent him to some kind of a, you know, Christian gender conversion therapy, which was probably not helpful. Right. But they explain, you know, they go through Leila Alcorn's social media posts from before, just describing all of these very complicated mental health issues that this young person had. And clearly, when you start to look at the the whole person, you realize there's never just one particular easy to target reason why a person has decided to you know die by suicide there's usually many moving parts and so yeah that's one of the guidelines in reporting is that we shouldn't simplify the narrative that way
1: and tell us have you a few more of them on front you there
0: yeah so engaging in repetitive ongoing or excessive reporting of suicide there in the go. news yeah which what's really fascinating to me i think we've touched on this before is when you look at much of the affirmation model, when you really start to question it, or or you raise all of the serious risks, like, well, gosh, you know, sterilizing children, or making children infertile, or removing organs from children, that sounds bad. And when you get to the brass tacks, the affirmative clinicians can only say, well, you know, there's the risk of suicide, you know, so to bring that up over and over and over, and to use that to justify this kind of urgent push for affirmation feels directly in contrast to what we know about what is an ethical way to discuss suicide. So that's a big one that really stands out to me. Yeah, it really does. There's been so many kind of, um, I know that the media, you know, reported
1: the suicide of a very sad, really sad case called Jaden Lowe. And Jaden was a trans teen who had transitioned, you know, he had medically transitioned but he was receiving his medication from an online unregulated doctor and he was only 18 and he died by suicide and you kind of think oh wow there's so much with that um there's so much so much distress in that and the online doctors who are transitioning kids I'm hearing about it in the parents meeting quite often and the parents live in fear that the the children are receiving online medication through the post, often to their friend's house. The friend thinks it's a great kind of you know a great thing to do for their friends, and the kids are in unregulated. They're in the wild west at this point. And this guy, Jaden, Lo- the the parents called for an inquest, another a second inquest after the death, when it turned out that actually he'd been, you know, re- you know, buying online cross-sex medication. And it was completely unregulated. So, you know, it could be interaction, interacting with other medication. And, you know, it was, so, it was such a sad story. And I, I I, don't know where and how it got to this point where suicide was being weaponized as a reason mm. for, for people to, to rush to transition. It's such a leap and it's a sad leap. One of the most famous suicide um, stats that are inappropriately and incorrectly represented is um, from the rare study. This is in the UK and the famous number that I heard so often, which was 48%. And like your researcher in Sweden, I just went 48%. No, there's more. There's, sorry, that that's that's that couldn't be right. I would know I'm too involved. I know too much about suicide to just take that at face value. Mm. And it turns out I was right because actually it turned out that it was an online survey. Therefore, anybody who wanted to take it and anybody who didn't want to take it didn't. It was 2078 kids. Took the survey, they were all LGBT um, uh, kids, so they said 48% of um, tra- LGBT kids um, attempted suicide. And it was like, hang on a second, when you looked at it, of those 2,078, only 27 of those kids were trans. And then of <sighs> those 27 kids, 13 of them had attempted suicide. And so they made the 48% unbelievably from the 13 out of 27. So they said, of a survey, I know. Mm -hmm. And transgender trend, God bless Stephanie davis arai because she really goes into the detail of all these type of things. She went, she got the details. So this misrepresented 48%. It was so badly misrepresented. I heard when I was doing that film Trans Kids in 2018, I heard that 48% again and again and again. And it was only because I happened to have an awful lot of um, experience in suicidality and understanding and knowledge around suicidality that I thought, there's more to that story because that... That number couldn't be right. I know enough to know that number isn't right. And it turns out I was so right. It was 2000, of a study of LGBT, 2000 kids. It wasn't, it was 27 kids out of 20, and then 13 out of 27. Do, do you understand my numbers? It was it was really, I do, it was I really do, inappropriately, I do. inappropriately reported and it didn't help mm-hmm. anybody.
0: It's interesting to me because You know, when I think about activism more generally, whether it's gender activism or any kind of activism, you always see people, um, activists kind of citing statistics, which kind of create like a a really a gloom and doom outlook. And that's used to try and push the cause, which... You know, activists, that's their job is to act you know advocate for their particular idea of how to resolve these problems or even what the problems are. but I, I also find it a little bit baffling that you know the young people that they're purporting to to be advocating for are not served at all by the repetition of these numbers and of these ideas. And you know, I've worked with young people who especially when they're quite young, they don't really understand what this is. You know suicide risk means, and they they tend to believe. I've met some young people who really believe that they're just going to be kind of like hit with this desire for suicide.
1: Yeah, you know, me too. like
0: they're just <laughs> going to be overtaken by this force, even though they're me. not suicidal at yeah. all, right? And so that's really not a helpful idea to put in the minds of children who are already struggling with a variety of issues.
1: Yeah, I've ha- I've met exactly that, and they they they. It's so, it's so wrong that they think this suicide thing is coming to get me. And so I have to, I have to transition quite quickly before it comes. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's so, it's so wrongheaded. It's so misinformed. Mm -hmm. It's been, these kids have been very badly treated that they think this. And it's where you kind of, why me and you have to have an episode on it to say, whoa, 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 this is not the case. This is not a fact. And it's, the likelihood of your suicide is no higher than it was yesterday, frankly.
0: Well, as a matter of fact, I mean, there was a Freedom of Information Act requested um, for the Tavistock to release some of their numbers. And the, the GIDS Tavistock Clinic in the UK between 2018 and 2020 reported zero suicide deaths amongst patients or amongst patients on the waiting list, of which there were 4,220 individuals. So more than 4,000 kids on a two-year waiting list to be seen by the kids, zero suicides. So that's actually a really positive piece of news that we should be so grateful for, because of course we don't want gender dysphoric children to be at a risk of suicide. So the fact that this... This seems like a positive uh, piece of information that's really valuable. I feel like we should be celebrating that and saying, that's great. Even while dealing with gender dysphoria, it seems that many, many kids are quite resilient and they're able to, you know, cope even though they really should be seen earlier. And it is a lot of distress to have dysphoria and not have support. That's a good thing. That's a good thing that there were no suicides. And I don't thing. understand why activists are not jumping on that as a cause of celebration.
1: Yeah. It's a great thing, and I think parents need to know it because parents are being silenced because of their fear of suicide. They're being silenced, they're 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 behaving strangely in the household because they're afraid of suicide. It's hanging over them, and the fear of suicide is the most terrifying fear and it's so paralyzing that you know parents behave in ways that they would rather they didn't because of the fear of suicide and um that's that's why we need to know that 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 extraordinary fact that you've just said about the waiting list Mm -hmm. i did notice was i remember when the kira bell decision came out last december what happened in the kira bell decision was it, it was it was it impacted Ireland and England and it was the the high court. They studied over 3000 pages of um, 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 evidence and they ruled that it would not be appropriate to prescribe um, puberty blockers for under 16 year old children, except under very extreme circumstances and you'd have to go to court to get them. And so therefore, a huge number of children who would have been on puberty blockers until that day were suddenly in a very legal, strange position. I think in the end they were allowed to take them so long as their parents agreed. But certainly I thought, oh my God, I wonder what's going to happen. I was very fearful at the time that the media would talk about suicide inappropriately Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that there would be kind of inappropriate and heightened emphasis on suicide. And then kind of emotional kids would think of it and, you know, would consider it because it's a very contagious, very Mm -hmm. infectious point. Like so much so that there's even like the signs in these kind of suicide kind of places that are well known for suicide. There's signs because they realize this is not a subject that you play around with. You really have to be serious with it, And yet it has been played around with very badly by the gender community. But um, yeah, there wasn't thankfully there wasn't whatever way it was played by the media since the Kira Bell there hasn't been a mass reporting of attempted suicides and you know just dis- devastated children who couldn't get the puberty blockers there there was no report so I I was very pleased about that now I might mm-hmm. have missed some but I'm usually mm. very very up on all
0: this sort of information mm-hmm. so I'd be surprised if I did but yeah when you when you say there are signs you said you know even in these places there are signs what did you mean by that there are signs, yeah, about the suicide. Oh, yeah, about, mm. yeah. So
1: let's say you know, there's a few famous places. You know, Beachy Head is one in the UK, and is the Golden Gate Bridge or something? And I don't mm, know, probably, yeah.
0: probably. There's
1: certain places that are well known, and they have it's beautiful. They have signs, and they say if you want to talk to somebody, and they have. Oh, I see. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I th- I think is lovely, and they actually have. I know in a few places in Ireland they have patrols. They have mm. people, especially mm-hmm. after a suicide mm-hmm. cluster. They would have mm-hmm. volunteers go out and they stand around the, the the places that are dangerous to talk to people. There's some brilliant training and I think parents who are fearful of suicide should go to these trainings. It's things like suicidal training assist, suicide mm-hmm. skills, mm-hmm. just so you're not afraid of the subject and you realize mm-hmm. I can do as much as anybody else can do. I can talk about it and I can think about it. I think it really help would really help mm-hmm. parents.
0: Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about that because you mentioned how afraid parents are of, of the prospect of their child dying by suicide. And you're absolutely right. I mean, when parents have a child who is talking about suicide or seems to be extremely depressed, it is absolutely just paralyzing. And, you know, unfortunately, at least here in the U.S., and you can comment on how this looks in Ireland, but here in the U.S., there are some... Um, mental health professionals or institutions where almost the first response to statements about suicide or even about self-harm seems to be a referral to a psychiatric hospital. Oh, yeah. Or a behavioral kind of residential center or something like that. And I I was quite baffled actually when I discovered this because You know, having worked with dysphoric teenagers for, or sorry, with teenagers in crisis for many years, I had done just dozens and dozens of suicide assessments, which are basically a set of questions that you ask a young person to help determine what is their actual risk um, of dying by suicide or of attempting suicide. And you can ask these types of questions to try and help you as a clinician determine basically how worried should I be? What interventions are necessary at this point? And there are so many steps in my opinion between a child saying, for example, I cut myself last night, or I'm thinking about suicide and actually putting them in some sort of a behavioral health center. There are many, many, many steps in between. And there's so much that we know can be helpful in terms of the parental support um, kind of getting on the same page with the child's therapist. But I have found many families uh, hospitalize their children based on the recommendation of a school or uh, some kind of other professional. And sometimes these placements are actually very unhelpful. And the last thing you really want, when you think about the overall well-being of a young person, is for them to become one of these kind of chronic patients that's in and out of mental health hospitals. And I, I want to ask you about that. I couldn't agree
1: more. I had a I had a client in a very similar situation, and you know he, he you know he he was suicidal. That the parent did exactly the right thing she thought which was to bring him to the doctor the doctor like a lot of like you say schools it said oh my god as in escalate to the top immediately because I'm so frightened
0: you know what I mean and
1: so suddenly this kid and he was a kid was in a psychiatric unit that night and you know I met him maybe two days later oh what a lovely kid and he was like he was If anything, he had been provoked into kind of political fury of no child, no child should be put where I was put. And yeah, he talked about it so eloquently and so passionately, like it was awful. It was just so awful. And Mm -hmm. he was saying, I was feeling depressed and then I was in this awful place. And, you know, there was all this admin and all these questions and questions, questions, questions. And anyway, I worked with them and it, it ended up very well and it was fine. But, you know, I, I I really think it's probably the the worst response. And yet I can see why it happens. I can see how the fear happens. I can see why people say, oh, my God, escalate quickly. But people have this almost instinct of get the professionals in. Why? Because we want to do something big because yeah. it's a big event. Yeah. And sadly, it's not necessarily the right thing, even though I'd be very reluctant to say, don't do it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the types of behavioral therapies that is really built around the prevention of self-harm and suicidality is DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. And, um, you know, in one, one article that I found that's really helpful... One of the main approaches that DBT uses is to reduce the use of psychiatric hospitalization. And, you know, they say DBT aims to provide treatment to high-risk clients in the least restrictive setting possible good. first. So that's like what you were talking yeah. about, how sometimes people escalate to the most restrictive setting. And, you know, they talk about how there's actually actually no good data to indicate that, Psychiatric hospitalization reduces the risk of suicidality. I, yeah. So it's really messy, but unfortunately, that's become kind of like a formula that some doctors and professionals use. Like, if a c- kid says they're suicidal, send them to the hospital. And it's not always appropriate. And, you know, lest I sound like I'm anti psychiatric hospitals, I've definitely worked with some kids who, you at a particular you know. moment in time, were a, a kind of like break from reality, somewhat of a psychotic state, really needed to be in that high safety environment. But for many young people who, you know, just like cut themselves one time and they're never going to do it again, they don't require hospitalization.
1: And this boy, I remember, he, he came into the room and, you know, my room is lovely, the w- room I work in, it's very, it's particularly warm and inviting. And he was saying, Look at this room. It's just nice. I needed to feel better and he really meant it. And he said, I was in this awful room and all these nurses were coming in and they were just grabbing me and he like he was talking about just the awful dehumanizing experience yes. of being a, a kid in a mm. hospital. Versus as he was saying, I just needed somebody like you saying nice things. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's that's all he did need. Honestly, he was was grounded enough. He had been through hardship. He was looking at. And that's something I would like to raise, actually, around suicidality. I think people don't realise how much of this is an existential yearning. And I think a lot of people who are suicidal and have worked with quite a lot have, um, they're more existential than others. They're more philosophical than others, and they think, "Well, I don't have to be here." I know I was, I was really quite suicidal for many years. More, more could, you know, when I was a child and a very, very depressed and distressed teenager, but it lingered for many years. It lingered as an option. And Mm. I've spoken about this with clients because I've had my own experience. I've said it stays in as an option. And they said, yeah, they've said many times. Yeah, it does. It's like I'm Mm -hmm. here by choice and I think Mm. I'm very existential. And it's like, well, Mm. as soon as I came to a reckoning of I I don't have to be here. I immediately jumped to, well, will I be here? I don't know if I'm going to stay here. I I could just go. Now, I've met people where that just doesn't come into their brain. They think mm. of other things. Do you follow me? And mm-hmm. I, I remember knowing mm-hmm. somebody very well. And he said, I think of murder. <laughs> think of suicide. <laughs> as in it just goes a different way in their brain. And I think when we're addressing suicidality, because we go into panic and we go into psychiatric and we think it's the nadir of depression as opposed to, this is an existential yearning of of it's talking about pain and wanting to stop pain. Mm-hmm. It's 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 using free choice when you feel very imprisoned. I felt very imprisoned. It's like I don't have to be here. Mm-hmm. I have one bit of free will here, and I I think that's not quite addressed. I think people who are suicidal need to be if you if you know anybody i think not only should you do let's say the suicide intervention skills training which are you know which are available everywhere and they're brilliant they're online but also i think the parent or the clinician needs to speak about free will and what's in your future what would you be missing and i think if you have if you do work with somebody with who has suicidal kind of ideation or thoughts if you can talk to them about the future that they realize there's there can be a great future ahead of you. That's where yeah. I go. I, you know, I yeah. go for the existential. Yeah, it's a choice, and look what you'd miss.
0: You know, those are some of the kind of factors that protect people from dying by suicide. It's like one is feeling responsible to the people in your life, a sense of responsibility of for like some reason, I, I, owe don't go them. For
1: that. Well, I think it's important.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the protective factors that were discussed in this DBT article were a sense of responsibility to your family, the feeling that suicide is morally wrong. Fascinating, because most people today are trying to destigmatize everything. I know. Even even um, committing suicide as a term has now been kind of transitioned into more of like dying by suicide, which is certainly more innocuous in that it takes the blame out of the hands of the person, right? So it's very interesting the way the language around this, especially when it comes to like advocacy work shifts things, because what the data shows is that that moral conundrum is actually a protective factor that keeps people from committing suicide. So, so we um, moved they're, from they're, it
1: being a taboo to it being right. normalized and then inappropriately normalized because actually it's, it, it's protective for people to feel that it's morally wrong. So yes, that, that yes. Yet again, a brain melt of we've trying to do the right thing and it not ending very well.
0: And I think, of course, having a sense of, of hopefulness about the future yeah. is important. And so you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. You, you, raised, you raised this important point about this being an existential issue. And, you know, before we Kind of shift over I do want to say that this is a fantasy of escape
1: yeah yeah what a good line and
0: I, th- I think if we if we have a good rapport with our clients and they trust us and open up to us with this suicidal fantasy there are many cases I believe where we're doing them a disservice if we just immediately get into fix it mode because there's a lot of important content there to explore yeah. if you can hold it in this hold kind of curious space and if you can get a client to self-reflect about why they are why they are defaulting to that coping strategy of escape it's a fantasy of leaving your problems behind that's an important self-reflection that they need to be able to gather on their own and i th- i I think Sometimes when a person is in that space, but they're not actually attempting, let's say it's just this kind of almost ideation. like an OCD like ideation, yeah. right? Yeah. If you try to, if you try to move them into, we're going to get rid of this, we're, we're going to work on just eradicating mm. your suicidal ideation too soon. They're back in that trapped feeling of having no control. Like you said earlier, it was this fantasy control. of I get to choose. Mm. And so, I mean, of course, if you are concerned that your client may actually attempt, that's a totally different story. But there are some young people, some adults who are just ruminating on the fantasy, but they're not actually at a risk. And that needs to be explored carefully in therapy without going too quickly into an action oriented intervention. You're so right. And it's so
1: hard. And that's where, in fairness, professionals who can hold the space really matter, you know what I mean? But if you're of an existential bent yourself, if you're interested in philosophy and why are we here and who are we here, mm-hmm. and if your child or somebody love you love is around talking around life and death, I think you can broaden the conversation without having to speak about suicide because you might be frightened and you might want to keep that with the therapist yeah. or whatever. I think you can talk about life, what's it for? what's the point in life? Why are we here? How do we how do we manage to kind of hold hold the tension of living and be happy? And also, you know, it's very it's very hard to be happy in this world, but certainly to 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 remain engaged Mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah. Even when you're you're low. And, you know, it's not a case of, oh, you've got to be resilient. You've got to go a lot deeper.
0: That's right. That's right. There's a beautiful piece that I'm going to link in the notes about existential depression in gifted people. And I think you're right. People who are deep thinkers, even from a very young age, four, five, six, are asking these big questions about mortality and about life and why are things unfair. And, of course, this leads to that question of, you know, do I have autonomy over my choice to live or not? It is an existential question for sure. And, you know, if it's okay with you, I would like to now maybe speak to loved ones of a person who might be experiencing suicidal ideation. And, of course, there are scenarios in which you do need to take them for professional support, perhaps hospitalization, perhaps a mental health professional. But as general best practices... I want to share what I think is really important here. So usually when a person is really in this stuck place, it is likely because their world has gotten quite small. At least with adolescence, I think the loneliness and isolation that is characteristic of some young people's lives these days exacerbates the, the desire to escape.
1: Just be aware of whatever... Gender dysphoria? No, that doesn't raise my kind of my kind of spidey senses around suicide. Isolation? Yeah, I'm very interested. I think isolation is a really really frightening scenario, and it's very mm-hmm. hard to bring out the isolated kid. It's hard to bring them back into the world, and that's our kind mm-hmm. of job.
0: Yeah. So, so how do you recommend? Because I know you also wrote this book about bullying. Yeah. What do you recommend? Let's say a family has a child who has had some social failures and they're very alone and maybe they're nervous to reconnect with other kids or they haven't found their their people yet. What are some recommendations that you can give to parents? How do you help that young person get back out there into life despite the apprehension they might have about about bullying or about other kids or social anxiety? And uh, ex-
1: isolation and exclusion. Yeah, I go into it in quite a big lot of detail. The book's called Bullyproof Kids. But what it is, is more than anything, is you're kind of, you're, You're trying many different things. One of the things you are definitely doing when the child is isolated and lost and lonely um, is turning, I think, to art and literature and films and books and making them realise that this happens and this happens to deep thinkers more than it happens to others and this happens to those who, who, who are willing to be different more than others and you need to maybe go further afield to find your find your tribe and to find a sense of belonging and it might be within music this year and it mightn't mm. be with the kids because mm-hmm. actually that that you mightn't get that this year so that there's some sort of softening of, of somebody when they realize oh I'm different and oh it's okay to be different and actually there's some amazing people who are kind of like me that's a really uh, liberating feeling at the same time I think it's important that parents kind of step back and think I can't just keep on telling them to put their shoulders back and smile. It's not working. So maybe I need to kind of look further afield and see if there's other things we could get interested in. Maybe it might be walking a mountain, climbing a mountain. It might be kind of going towards nature. It might be towards learning a skill, something that might distract them but also absorb them. And yes. not that you put all your eggs into that basket. You might just say, oh, mm-hmm. we're going to start. Working around boats and water, you can't just get fixated on that. You have to try a good few different things. So there's a low key feeling of, "Listen, work with us. We're going to try a good few different things. We're also mm-hmm. going to go deeper, and we're going into existential and art and literature and things. And we're, let's give it a year or two. This is mm-hmm. really difficult. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a year or two. So it's a kind of a complete and open kind of open conversation of, you know, what you're different, you're unusual." And now we're going to have to integrate you so that we find your tribe, but it might take a little bit of time. It does take a lot of heart from the parents and a lot of Mm, effort. But I think mm -hmm. it really is a Mm -hmm. beautiful gift to give your kid to see their pain, not to look away and to address it is Mm -hmm. a really generous thing. I think a lot of parents just look away because it's just so horrible Mm -hmm. and frightening for them.
0: Yeah, I think too, when 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 a young person is in that place of being in a really dark kind of mental space, they push people away. And I often find myself telling parents, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if your child with their mouth says, I want to be alone tonight, what you might need to do is say, No, come on, guys, we're turning the TV off. Come help me make your favorite cookies from childhood. Like, we're going to do something together anyway. And I think in those teenage years, it can be very difficult because parents are trying to find appropriate ways to give their young person space, which is very important. And I always advocate for giving a teenager privacy. And on the other hand, if a young person is in a very dark place and they don't know how to self-manage... The loved ones in their life actually have to lean in with a little bit more assertiveness and really loving on that child, whether they express that they like it or not in the moment. And I find that rebuilding that connection and that attachment is a very important part of moving that child from an isolated space into a place of feeling more connected.
1: Yeah. I remember when I was a kid and I, you know, I was lonely and definitely pushed my parents away and had very little connection with them. But I remember I was sitting in the car beside my dad and he he handed me a piece of paper, which on it was the, you know, the Philip Larkin poem, this be the verse, do you know? It? It's a, it's a great poem. It's a shocking poem. And uh, I I he, he handed it to me. So he must have, Got it from somewhere because that was back in the day where photocopiers, you know, weren't around and things like that. And you know, the first few lines of this poem is they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they may not mean to, but they do. And then it goes in beyond and it goes in deeper. But they in the next verse or second next verse, he says, But they were fucked up in their turn, as in, you know, your parents were messed up too. So I yeah. remember anyway, it must have been so unsatisfying for my my poor father because he I was there in my depression, unreachable, you know, impenetrable. By the way, unrecognizable to the person I am now.
0: And mm. um,
1: he handed it to me and I looked at it and I read it and I literally just flicked it down onto the, to the, what I know, <laughs> I just flicked it basically out of my hand, didn't comment on it. He started the car, drove on, you know, nobody said anything. And like all these years later, I remember it. You know, so you would, not he will, he's died. He's died a long time ago, my dad, maybe 10, 11 years ago. But he wouldn't know that that stayed in my mind as, you know, a very serious meeting of minds that he gave to me. He had no idea. So you don't know when you're getting through. You just don't know, because there's no way he would. He would have walked away going, that was a disaster. Mm -hmm. I literally didn't even look up, just flicked the thing out of my hand. That's right. Yeah, Tragic.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by Rhyme, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. Rhyme is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more.
1: If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod.
0: Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.